Welcome to 35mm Perspective, a podcast where we watch movies and tell you what we thought about them. My name is Jacob Coots, I am your host today, and I am joined by my co-host, Grant Vavra. Grant, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm not doing too bad, Jacob. Uh, how about yourself? I'm feeling, you know, not not really great, not really bad, very middling. Which is a foreshadowing for the movie we're talking about today. Right, and the movie that we're going to be talking about today is The Lion King, the live-action remake, which I sort of hesitate to say live-action, and so does Disney. That's just what everybody else has been saying. They were saying that it's somewhere more like a CGI meets live-action meets something else kind of movie. But we'll get to that later on in the podcast. First, we have some trailers to talk about. And then we're going to move into our industry talk segment and we're going to round out the big three score aggregators. And you're going to tell me about cinema score and how they aggregate scores and what all that means. And then finally, we're going to move into our feature presentation, which again is the sort of live action Lion King. So without too much further ado, let's get right on into those trailers. Jacob so there's some big news that we're gonna have to talk about this week but we'll do this at the end of the trailers first let's talk about you know we're doing a live action Disney movie as is and there are plenty more coming out but I believe the next one to come out is Mulan and I had heard a lot about it but I hadn't seen the trailer actually until I was in the theater to see The Lion King so afterwards and before I had done a little bit of reading and it seems like the Huns aren't the bad guy in this movie it's like a complete retelling there's an evil witch based on some of the castings and interviews that I read and that she is the bad guy now, which is weird to me because how are we going to get down to business to defeat the Huns if they are not the bad guys? Yeah, I'm kind of perplexed by this entire movie, how they've started talking about it, how they kind of backtracked on some stuff they said. It's, it's almost like it was... <laughs> It's going to be the same accuracy as based on a true story, but it's based on a false story. I don't know. It's uh, it's. I'm going to be curious to see how they, what the second trailer looks like. Yeah, I agree. And I think what you're generally speaking about when you say they said something and then went back on it is that initially in some interviews, the director um, made it sound like they were removing the songs that this wasn't going to be a musical. And then in later interviews, she said something to the effect of, Oh, well we, I didn't really mean to say that we haven't discussed music at all yet. So who knows, which is good because there's some bangers in Mulan and that, you know, everybody will get around to singing. It'd be cool to have a whole movie theater singing that, but also I'm sure it would get annoying for anybody that might <laughs> not be familiar. Um, but speaking to other things that are changed, it seems like Mushu also isn't going to be, in this movie, the, you know, famous animated dragon played by Eddie Murphy, and it's being replaced by, or he is being replaced by a phoenix, which doesn't seem like it's going to be as funny, and I don't know if they're going to make it talk or not, but, you know, Dishonor on Your Cow isn't going to be quite the same. One, not coming from a dragon, and two, not coming from Eddie Murphy's um, really funny performance. Well, yeah, and I think what's important to know is that it's being replaced by Phoenix, but not Hakeem Phoenix. Uh, that is something that I, uh, well, a little bit of honesty moment. I did pronounce his name wrong in our last week's podcast. Uh, so if you heard that and you said, hey, that's wrong, I I realized that. Uh, a little bit off topic there, but yeah, I'm going to be interested to see what they do with Mushu uh, and, and the Huns and this evil witch, uh, and we'll be able to watch that on March 27th of next year, 2020. Okay, so there was another movie trailer that I saw here that I actually also saw before the other live-action um, Disney film Aladdin last month, two months ago, whenever I saw it. And it's 
for something that I initially thought was a joke, but Dora and the Lost City of Gold, a live-action Dora the Explorer movie, which is a departure from the TV show because Dora is searching for a lost Incan city while also preparing to tackle her new biggest adventure ever, high school. So this isn't the, like, pre-K or kindergarten Dora or however old she was supposed to be. I have no idea um, back then. But I'm the, the other thing that amazed me is that it's kind of a surprisingly star-studded cast with Benicio Del Toro as Swiper, I assume as the voice of Swiper, although I would also love to see Benicio Del Toro <laughs> dressed as Swiper. Uh, Danny Trejo as Boots, obviously only as the voice because we saw Boots. Although, once again, I would love to see Danny Trejo dressed as Boots. Because um, Can you imagine Machete dressed... It's just, just weird to imagine Machete either dressed as Boots or doing the voice of this like tiny character. And I'm interested to see if they, again, because they're older now, I guess, if they change his character at all. Um, but going back to the cast, Eva Longoria is Dora's mother and Michael Pena is Dora's father. So they were able to pull a lot of names for this, which is kind of crazy to me. Crazy indeed. And I just saw this trailer and I thought to myself, why? And then I thought to myself, at least it's not Disney. <laughs> we're going to have a live action retelling of a cartoon from a different studio. Granted, the movies that the Nickelodeon produced. Paramount Nickelodeon tend to produce. Yeah, haven't been, what's the word, good? Uh, yeah, uh, I think that's the word. Yeah, there's, I mean, they actually had some good ones early on. They had the SpongeBob movie, a classic, Don't You Even Tell Me Otherwise. And then you also had Charlotte's Web. And then they started doing things like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Well, and again, speaking to another trailer, I don't know if you got the trailer for, oh man, I can't even remember what it's called. It's a John Cena movie where he's like a search and rescue helicopter firefighter or something, and him and Keegan-Michael Key, among others, have to take care of these three kids who got separated from their parents and they saved them from a house fire or something, and it's by Nickelodeon, Nick Studios and Paramount, and I was like, oh, that... That doesn't look great. <laughs> I believe it's called Playing With Fire? That's... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Okay, yeah. That I... Nickelodeon, I you know, I want to see more competition for Disney because they pretty much dominate the box office nowadays, but uh, it doesn't seem like Nickelodeon is that answer. Granted, I'm still going to watch this movie. I might have to have a drink or two before going into the theater, though. Yeah, that's true. And we'll be able to watch it on August 9th, 2019. So coming out here soon. But speaking to Disney, dominating the box office, let's talk about the fact that Avengers Endgame just broke the record set previously by Avatar for like highest box office intake ever. You again, I've said this before, you're the bigger Marvel guy. What is the impact of this? Like, talk to me about this. There was, there's a lot of interesting things about this record breaking. I mean, first of all, it seemed like for a little bit there, it wasn't going to do it at all. It had that insane opening weekend. And we'll talk about more how it did break the record and how it got that insane opening weekend next week. But, you know, it, it slowed down significantly. Granted, it was still in the ballpark at $2.6 billion, uh, which is like, wow, what a slowdown, right? Um, yeah. But they re-released Endgame, so they put it into about 900 theaters. They they had doubled or or some. It, it became a second release while it was still released, which was also unique. But the implications this is going to have going forward. They announced this during the Phase Four unveiling, uh, and and Phase Four had some mixed reviews from fans. I I was going to say after such a big box office feet like this that they might have trouble at the box office but then spider-man became the first spider-man movie far from home uh, to break a billion dollars so yeah. they have maintained that progress they got people excited uh and, and i think that this momentum is going to carry them forward they're gonna they have such a place with their fans that they're gonna have to lose that trust by doing something wrong i don't think that 
interest is going to fall out for at least two more phases. Oh, no, I, I agree. Um, a couple of quick cool things is that James Cameron posted a picture on Twitter handing off the torch. It has Iron Man covered in the little, like, I forget what they're called, the, like, little floating spore things from the trees and Avatar. And previous to that, when it surpassed the uh, Titanic record, he posted a picture on, I think, Instagram that was the Avengers A most of the way underwater sinking the Titanic. So he said something about how the Avengers sunk the Titanic, which was kind of funny. Speaking to the difference, though, as of the last time I looked, the difference is very small, I mean, in relative terms, where the Avengers had $2.791 billion versus Avatar's $2.789 billion. And if anyone's interested, the top five highest grossing films in order, which again, we'll talk more about next week, as this is actually going to be our industry talk segment next week. But the top five films in order are Endgame, which is distributed by Disney and Marvel Studios, Avatar, which was distributed by 20th Century Fox, which is now owned by Disney, Titanic, which was also distributed by 20th Century Fox, now owned by Disney, Star Wars The Force Awakens, distributed by LucasArts, now owned by Disney, and Infinity War, which is distributed by Disney. And again, further, for anyone keeping score at home, Disney now owns eight out of the top ten slots for highest grossing movies at all of all time. The only two that they don't own is slot six, which is Jurassic World, distributed by Universal, and slot eight, which is Fast and Furious 7, which is was also distributed by Universal. So they, I, we'll get more into this next week, but usually people say that there's the big five studios in Hollywood, but it really looks like there's only one. Well, yeah, and if you look at just the top five, we have two movies directed by the Russo brothers, two by James Cameron, and then uh, The Force Awakens, who is directed by J.J. Abrams. So it's a very uh, niche club, I guess, in that top five. Oh, yeah, for sure. And interestingly, speaking to the Russos, they said that for now they actually don't have any plans to make any future Marvel movies, but they wouldn't be opposed because they had a really good working relationship with Disney um, when they were helping to write and develop uh, the Infinity War saga or the two movies. So for now, it looks like they're done and they're moving into some other um, features, which I'm sure we'll talk about in other trailers, segments in the future. But we'll have to be on the lookout for what happens there. And like I said, if anybody's interested, next week our entire industry talk segment is actually going to be about the implications, how this happened, the re-release, stuff like that. So if you want to hear more, meet us next week for industry talk. But for now, let's get out of this segment and get back into our industry talk this week. And you're going to tell me a bit about CinemaScore, Jacob. That I will. So before we get to our feature presentation, The Lion King, we're going to talk a little bit about CinemaScore, kind of completing this journey we've gone through the last three weeks with Metacritic, then Rotten Tomatoes, and now CinemaScore, kind of like the big three review sites that people look to, the three most cited on you know, movie advertisements, things like that. And Grant, it's to my knowledge that you don't know much about CinemaScore. I know basically nothing. I, I didn't, I'm not sure that I knew CinemaScore existed before you decided that this was going to be our industry talk this week. <laughs> You're not alone. It's probably the least known, but it's actually pretty popular in terms of, again, movie advertisements and the way they market themselves is the industry leader in measuring movie appeal. Which I would disagree with, personally, and I think you would too, because you haven't even heard of them. Uh, yeah, based upon what I just said, I you can't be an industry leader if you're not a household name, as far as I'm concerned. I agree with that. And, I mean, granted, they have been around the longest. They were started in 1979 by a guy named Ed Mintz. What? Yeah. He, he watched a movie, and he's like, hey, this movie kind of sucks. And then the guy next to him, he's like, yeah, I agree with that. And so he just started CinemaScore. He wanted regular opinions, not the opinions of critics, which I can respect. There wasn't much going for that at the time, especially because, you know, the Internet and all those things. Uh, it, it was really just newspapers and uh, magazines that were telling you about movies. And so it had kind of a noble beginning, I would say. Yeah, for sure. That's really cool, too, finding out that he wanted regular opinions and not critics. So that's 
really what Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic are rooted in too. So even if it's not the most popular, you can definitely see where they both drew influences from CinemaScore. Yeah, and so they started with this, you know, very you know, noble quest. Like we want, we're for the people, and now they're based in Las Vegas, and they release their results through Entertainment Weekly, which doesn't sound as bad, but <laughs> they only report to studios now. They don't. Re- they used to report to consumers first, and now they they oh. yeah. So now they report uh, to the studios. They still release it on like social media and all of that, but it kind of lost a little bit of its kind of grassroots mentality, I guess, when st- movie studios started taking interest in it. Because again, especially back then, it was pretty big uh, in terms of gauging movie interest and uh, reviewing movies for the public. Oh, yeah, I bet. Especially when you take into consideration what we talked about with the Rotten Tomatoes effect. This was the Rotten Tomatoes effect before Rotten Tomatoes existed. Yeah, exactly. And it still does have some pretty good um, statistical properties. I'll talk about that at the end. But I think it's important to know how these scores are calculated, what they even look like. Because we saw on Metacritic, it's you know the scale from 0 to 100 for the critics. From Rotten Tomatoes, it's 0% to 100%. And here the grades are not quantitative like that they're a rating scale from pretty much a plus to f so the categories are a little bit more coarse but their goal is to not nail down what exactly this movie is it's to kind of gauge the general appeal for a movie and how they do that is they have this team they have 35 ish teams across 25 cities and each friday representatives in i think it's five cities they give opening day audiences a a survey card that has demographic information and then at the end they rate the movie from an a to an f as you can imagine not everyone wants to fill these out and i think they say they have about a 65 percent response rate which isn't great I mean, it's not great, but that's kind of insane given that most surveys, you know, surveys that are handed out or surveys that you're asked to do are insanely low, especially when I have to imagine that they probably don't get any product or reward from this. Like, think about how hard fast food places have to try to give you or to get you to leave a review or do a survey and they'll give you free food for it. That is true. Yeah, the response rate is much higher than the free entree from Panda Express and they get no reward. Um, And so they end up with about 400 cards per film and then they average these scores and they create some kind of like, uh, you know, again, A plus rating, B minus. What you'll notice if you look at these cinema scores is that they're generally a lot higher than what you see on Rotten Tomatoes or on Metacritic or just general reviews. Almost all movies get a B minus or above. Oh, wow. And if you think about it, that actually kind of makes sense because the opening night crowd is going to be the most likely to like the movie. Right. The most excited about it, the people that bought tickets in advance that wanted to see this movie. So they're more than likely going to generally like it no matter what. Exactly. So I think what's not... I don't think a good grade is necessarily telling about a movie. If it gets an A, every movie gets an A. Um, (laughs) But if it gets a really low score, that means it's probably a bad movie. And so people will talk about this and they'll say, a C- is actually an F for a movie on CinemaScore. Wow. Except for certain genres. So you would imagine that, you know, comedies, Marvels, tend to be rated pretty highly by audiences. Right. But horror movies in particular suffer from the the lowest ratings. And that kind of tracks. Yeah, I would believe that. I think that these past couple weeks, that seems to be the case across the board, that relative to, like you said, comedy, uh, action movies, Marvel-ish superhero movies, horror tends to be the lowest ratings of all of them. And it's 
it makes sense. You never see somebody get out of an Annabelle movie and they're just so inspired by life. They're just like, oh my, <laughs> I can't wait to go help people. No, it's, it's a little bit darker. It's a little bit right. more scary. And I think it was The Conjuring that was the first movie to ever, horror movie to ever get above a B plus. Oh, really? Wow. So in all the years of existing, you had a couple of B pluses here and there, but for the most part, it was this conjuring universe that broke that uh, seal, so to say. So, so it wasn't, so from 1979 to 2013, no horror films had done that well. That's insane. Yeah. And, and quite a few have still been received well, but you know, when you're looking at the initial opinion, about 400 people from five different cities, the general rating was just around a B plus for a good horror film. That's crazy. And so if we were to, you know, really drive home this point of how favorable the ratings on CinemaScore are, since its inauguration, it's had 84 A pluses. So 84 movies that have achieved the highest mark you can get. But there have only been 19 Fs. Whoa, that's crazy. Exactly. I, I Granted, there was a lot of movies, far more than 19 I would have rated F, but that's how hard it is to get these bad scores. These terribly low scores. Yeah, so hearing that, I can I can definitely see why people would say that, you know, a C or lower is actually an, an F. That said... I don't know if I like it more than Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic, but I something to me somehow an A to an F scale almost feels more natural for a movie because it's not so numerical, it's not so put into place. It's it's much more of a feeling versus assign a number, like assign a numeric score to this movie. Whereas you know you could say a B is. Because if, if somebody rated a movie a B, it say you rated a movie a B, and I was going to ask you, oh, well, you know, what's the score out of 10? You wouldn't immediately go, oh, well, that's the fourth one, so an 8 out of 10. You would say, well, I mean, you know, it's probably like, that might be like a 6.5, but that's still a B to you. So, again, I can see how the scores are higher. But also, when it comes to, it's it's hard for me, but when it comes to something that's kind of subjective, like art, you know, like film, literature, things like that, this again makes a little bit more sense to me in that it's based more on your your feelings or your general sense of what you thought of something versus giving it a hard number. Yeah, and I totally agree with that because the cutoff the cutoffs almost become arbitrary at some point. You're like, oh, it was a seven point four five, I'd say. Right. That continuity error made it lose a point and that no, it's it's so much so I do respect that part. Granted, I do reference cinema score the least for a couple of reasons the first being that it's the last to release of the major three uh and that's because it depends on these opening night metrics right so they can't really release it till the public has seen the movie so you can't really use it to screen that if you want to go watch opening night whereas rotten tomatoes and metacritic you'll see these scores before the movie drops at least the critic scores again you can't see the audience scores but you have some kind of metric when you go to those two websites. Yeah, and something in that case is better than nothing. So I can definitely see how that that would make an impact. And another limitation, so to speak, is that they only really do it for big movies. So wide releases in 1,500 or more theaters. For movies that release in fewer than that, they usually have to request a private contract, and then they'll get their results anonymously. So it's not necessarily tailored for indie films or other movies that a lot of people still watch and might have a lot of strong opinions on, but it just didn't have the pull or the budget to release in all these different theaters. Hmm. That's interesting. Out of interest, what's the most recent, you might have said this, what's the most recent A+. The most recent A+, <laughs> how timely is this? It's Avengers Endgame. Oh, of course. Well, I... I was going to say, maybe I should be surprised, but I guess I'm not. If it's, you know, the the highest grossing box office, I'm sure people liked it. And I'm sure that just knowing how Avatar got to be the number one, people have definitely gone to see Endgame again and again and again. So if you're going to do that, you must like it. So I guess I can't say I'm that surprised. 
Yeah, it's not surprising it was a movie that did very well on word of mouth. And for a comic book movie to break the record is particularly stunning because until the MCU came around, they really didn't do super well at the box office. No, and I'm sure that their you know, reception between Rotten Tomatoes, Metacritic, and CinemaScore, I'm sure that most comic book movies were actually probably almost on par with horror movies that a C was probably okay for a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, that's that's certainly true. But I think what we see the the most, what is also pretty timely is that, and this is the statistical property I referenced earlier, they tend to predict box office performance exceptionally well. So you see these movies, uh, an A+, those movies tend to fall within a certain multiplier, a term we'll talk about next week. Uh, but the rule is the higher the score the greater the box office performance. And the reason behind that is probably, for multiple reasons, it's probably a good movie, or at least likely to be a better movie if it did well in cinema score. But that means it's probably going to get good word of mouth. So if a movie has an A+, that means people were rating this very highly. They're going to talk to it about their friends. Their friends are going to watch it, and it just kind of has this butterfly effect. That's true. And I mean, in some of those cases, I'm sure... Um, the better word of mouth is even saying, yeah, I really like this movie. Do you want to go see it? I'll go see it again. Whereas they might not necessarily go see it again on their own, but if their friends want to go see it, they'll end up going together and that's just one more ticket sale. Yeah, so you end up with this effect where it's maybe not the cinema score effect because people aren't like, mm. this got an A plus on cinema score. We got to go watch it. But it kind of gauges this natural affinity for a movie. And so it inadvertently is measuring the same thing. Right, huh. That's interesting. Like I said, I'm glad to hear a lot of this because I knew nothing about CinemaScore. I effectively didn't know that it existed, but I'm definitely going to keep an eye on it now. Like I said, it might not be the best aggregator, like you mentioned, but it's it's interesting. It's certainly interesting to me, like I said, since it bases it more on a feeling than on a numerical number, which I like. Yeah. And for reference, The Lion King 2019 got an A. All right. Well, let's see if we agree with that. When we move, we move into our feature presentation, which we're going to get into right now. All right, here we are, the main event, the feature presentation, which this week again is The Lion King. So our leads are a little bit weird because we have characters that have grown up. So J.D. McCrary plays young Simba. Shahadi Wright plays young Nala. Older Simba is played by Donald Glover. Older Nala is played by Beyonce. Chiwetel Ejiofor, I hope I did that right, um, plays Scar. <laughs> Alfrey Woodard plays Sarabi. Billy Eichner as Timon. Seth Rogen as Pumbaa. John Connie as Rafiki. John Oliver as Zazu. And James Earl Jones reprising his role as Mufasa. Uh, the movie was directed by John Favreau, who also directed The Jungle Book, in addition to directing the first Iron Man and also playing Happy Hogan in um, the MCU. So, this movie was beautiful, and I don't think anybody can say otherwise, right? It looked like Planet Earth, it looked like something from the Discovery Channel, it looks like something that they probably put a lot of money into, which they very clearly did, because the budget was $260 million, a quarter of a billion dollars. That's insane. Oh my gosh. Um, but again, it, it, the visuals were beautiful and incredible, and it was really cool, especially considering that in the original animated Lion King, the visuals were really heavily on display. It was hand animated, meaning that every single frame of that film was drawn independently and then was cut together, which is crazy. So it was kind of cool, not necessarily an homage to that, but I think that they certainly did try and put the visuals on display because of that. And it was really cool seeing some of those iconic scenes, you know, like the opening, the circle of life at the beginning. Uh, Timon, Pumbaa, and Simba walking across the log. Seeing that in pseudo real life, what was cool, and it was something that the kid in me, I, I didn't know that I wanted it until I saw it. Yeah, and to just have the parallel between the more or less groundbreaking visuals of the first one on that big budget, and to see that sort of happen again have these groundbreaking visuals on a big budget for the new one. I thought that was a nice parallel between the two. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, 
beautiful and a crazy talented cast, which I'm sure also um, bled into the budget a little bit. As far as star-studded cast go, I, I actually felt let down after watching this movie. Like, I love Donald Glover, and I feel like he's a good actor, even for pre-established characters. Like, when he was Lando Calrissian in Solo, I thought he did an incredibly good job of continuing to bring that character to life and being very true to what that character was. Um, but I felt like his performance wasn't particularly good. And I, I don't know what conditions were like, for, you know, recording lines for this movie or what, but I just felt like everyone seemed tired. They all just sounded tired and over it and not quite giving as much as they could have, which is crazy, again, given how, how big the budget was on this. And even James Earl Jones, who who voiced Mustafa or Mufasa previously, he didn't sound as good. I mean, granted, he's getting older and a lot of things there, but it just it didn't have the same resonance, and I didn't feel like these actors brought it as much as the original actors. I agree with that. It felt like it lacked passion as a movie, which is crazy because you would think with this cast and the visuals, it would be some kind of dream team, a very passionate retelling of the story and it just felt like many of the performances were phoned in in some way Uh, a couple of people i've talked to have shared that sentiment it just for how good the cast was it didn't live up to what they're capable of doing like donald glover or i mean a couple of people aren't necessarily voice actors by trade i think that showed beyonce john oliver who actually did okay but I don't think he's had a credit in a movie before this. Uh, you know, offhand, I'm not sure. And I mean, to that end, for pretty much all of these um, actors, again, with the exception of James Earl Jones, and I might be getting this wrong. I didn't do the proper research for this previously. I don't know if any of them have voice acting credits prior to this. I mean, Donald Glover, I guess, in one episode of Community, as far as I'm aware. Um, but for the most part, they... As far as I know, they're not generally, at least, voice actors, and I felt like that kind of showed. Minus, of course, Seth Rogen in Sausage Party, which is a movie that I guess that's true should not be talked about ever. Yeah, that was a that was really something. But <laughs> that's a different podcast <laughs> and a very different demographic than uh, than the Lion King. That is true, and I think. Going back to the visuals, they were stunning, no doubt about that, but it almost felt like the images themselves lacked depth. It almost felt flat, kind of like the original, but I I don't know if it was because there was just so much CGI going on, so very little of it was real footage, that because of that it was hard to give these characters depth, and the smart aleck answer is watch it in 3D, Mm. but... The that's not what I mean. It's it's like with a lot of 2D movies and even animations like Pixar animations, you can tell that these characters have multiple dimensions to them. But there was just some it was some scenes where I don't know, it was it was almost like the like the voice acting. They just fell flat a little bit. I think what it is, is a lot of it was how the body actors is the wrong word but we'll use that in the interim (laughs) how the body actors interacted with the world it felt much more like they allowed it to interact with them versus them interacting with and i don't know if that's the way that it was designed to look or feel but i i know what you mean it didn't feel it was very clearly obviously you know everything had three dimensions and you could tell but it didn't always feel that way in some of the scenes which again maybe was meant to be an homage to the original animated movie but if it was it kind of fell flat yeah and even as far as production goes there were some times and i don't know if it was because you had these lions and these animals mouthing human english but there was some audio sync issues that i it just was a little bit off and it trip me up now and again to see especially it was very prominent when they held a long note i did not like the lions holding long notes in this film it just looked a little bit unsettling to me i Hmm. noticed this a little bit during spider-man so i've been paying a lot more attention to this when i've been watching movies and and in this film 
it's going to happen more on animated movies, of course, than true live action. And this is more animated than live action. But um, as far as production goes, again, I'm not knocking it at all. It was very well done. But just a couple of little things with the flat images and the audio syncing that pulled me out a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Getting back to the budget like we talked about, it was a little bit over a quarter of a billion dollars, but it's it's working for them because this film is already, and it's still in theaters, it is already in the top 50 highest grossing films of all time at the time of recording right now. It's at uh, number 47, and it's set to probably overtake its animated counterpart, which is at 44, which interestingly, and again, next week in our industry talk, we're going to talk a, a bit more about box office polls and whatnot, but interestingly, and I didn't know this, the original Lion King, the animated Lion King, actually peaked at number two on the highest grossing films of all time, which was a, an interesting little fact that I learned. I don't think that this is ever going to get to number two, so I think the original Lion King will hold that in its glory forever, but I would not be surprised in the slightest if this did overtake the original in terms of total box office gross. Oh, yeah, and it's it's almost there. I think it's only... Um this is 11 days after release and it's only a million a couple million behind so it will be interesting to see how much further it goes from here but it, oh, yeah. it's still got some legs left in it for sure um so did you have any other spoiler free thoughts jacob before we give some ratings and move on into our spoilers section i will just say this it was probably the closest to the original of all the Disney live action films that I've seen. It diverted the fewest number of times. It cut a couple of things. We'll talk about that later on. But if you've seen the original, you've definitely seen this movie. Yeah. And, and actually, I guess I have one more thought kind of going off this. We talked a little bit about this off cast. I'm interested to see what Disney does going forward. I mean, they're already working, clearly, like we talked about earlier on production for Mulan. They're working on production for a Little Mermaid movie. Um, But I feel like most of the live-action princess movies, anyway, that they've done are live-action remakes, haven't been heralded as great. I think Beauty and the Beast did fine. Aladdin did... Okay, I think Aladdin has done the best out of all of them in terms of, like, critical response. This did uh, okay, and we'll get into those scores in just one second. This did okay. Um, but it, to me, it feels like, it sort of feels like it should be make it or break it on Mulan and The Little Mermaid as to whether or not they continue to do this. But at the same time, from Disney's perspective, like we talked about, they only put, only, <laughs> put $260 million into this, and they're set to make well over a billion dollars. So, I mean, I guess they'll continue to make that money so despite the fact that these might not be the greatest movies and they're usually just banking on nostalgia and people wanting to see those movies that they watched as a kid in real life it's there we're not going to be rid of them anytime soon so everybody buckle in for that (laughs) but again speaking to the scores jacob like i said you're the score guy hit us with what everybody thought in terms of cinema score rotten tomatoes and metacritic so as i mentioned earlier cinema score gave this movie an a Uh, for reference The original Lion King is one of those A-pluses we talked about earlier. As far as Rotten Tomatoes and Cinema score go, uh, Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic go, there is an interesting divide between critics and audience on both websites. On Rotten Tomatoes, this has a 53%, and for the audience, it has an 88%. And on Metacritic, you're going to find it with a 55%, uh, with a 55% from critics and a 6.8 out of 10 from the users. So the audience, the general public is a lot more receptive to this than the critics are. Which isn't super surprising. Again, I think a lot of the people that went to see this are kind of people around our age who really love this movie. And that can go one of two ways. They either are going to love this just out of hand because it is the Lion King again, or they're actually going to probably have a rough time with it because it's not the original that they remember. So, which side of that are you on, Jacob? What is your score out of 10? My score is a little bit more on the critic side of things. Not a little bit more. It is certainly on the critic side of things. I gave this movie a 5 out of 10. Yeah, I'm going to have to mostly agree with you. I'm going to give it a 
a five and a half. I mean, I really, I'm one of the people that really loves the original Lion King, and this didn't quite have the same magic. And maybe it's because it is a remake, um, and so I already knew what was coming. Maybe it's because this isn't the VHS that I'm going to wear out at my grandmother's house, you know, a million times over. And we'll get more into the the reasons that I feel like this in the spoiler section. But you know, collectively, we're we're about on the same page, and we're definitely on the same page with other critics. So. I guess we're not alone, although the public might tend to disagree with us. And it's sad, because I'd like to think we are part of the public, Grant, but we're a hybrid. We we definitely are. We're, we toe that line very finely. <laughs> but all right. With that in mind, we're going to move into our spoiler portion of the review. Um, this is a weird one, because generally speaking, if you've seen the original film, you've also sort of seen this. Again, there's there's some minor differences, and we'll touch on those a little bit in this section. So if you want to be a little bit surprised by a remake of a movie that came out in the mid-90s, you're going to want to tune out now. <laughs> like I always say, go ahead and put this on pause on your computer, on your phone, wherever you're watching or listening. Um, we'll be here. So go ahead and go watch that movie. Come back and then join us for the spoiler segment of the show. Okay, so let's get into this. Jacob, there is a huge controversy that has actually been going on since the original Lion King, the animated film, came out. And you know a lot more about this than me. I didn't know anything about this until you sent me a link to this earlier in the week. So why don't you tell me a little bit more about the Kimba controversy? I will be glad to. I don't think you can talk about the Lion King fully without talking about this thing called the Kimba controversy it's getting some more steam with the re-release coming up which makes sense and so I figured why not talk about this especially when we talk about all these different remakes going on and perhaps the originality of Disney but this Kimba controversy revolves around this animated series called Kimba the White Lion and there's a few variants of this. There's a movie, there's a show, but I'm just going to refer to this as Kimba the White Lion because that's the character. It's pretty much, if you look at, look at the videos, there's some shot-for-shot remakes of the original Lion King and Kimba the White Lion. It's almost unsettling. You have Scar, who has the scar in his left eye, and Kimba, his left eye is repl- it's just gone. There's, there's scar in place of his left eye instead of around it. There's scenes with an older lion and his little son. It's honestly, it wouldn't be as bad as it was if Disney acknowledged it in some way. But they haven't, and they've vehemently denied it. Multiple people have said they've never even heard of Kimba the White Lion, which aired in the 60s in Japan and then was taking off again in the 80s so the person who created kimba osamu tezuka was heralded in japan as kind of their walt disney and so he had created some parallels pulling from i think one of his specific references was bambi and so there was some acknowledgement there some mutual we respect your studio and then Disney comes around, and part of the marketing for the original Lion King is this is their first original movie with no other influences to it. That was their whole thing. It drew some people in because, you know, previously Disney had popularized and animated fairy tales and other stories, Winnie the Pooh. And so this was a big deal being their first quote-unquote original tale. And then some people, some animators and public from Japan saw what was happening and they said, this is very much like our story. And there was petitions from about, I think it was a five, 500 different animators and studio persons from Japan signed a petition asking Disney to not publish the film or at least acknowledge them, that sort of thing. And then Disney said, no, we've never heard of you, but we have inspired, this movie has been inspired by Bambi, the Bible, and Hamlet. And so they had backtracked on that initial originality moniker, but still didn't give credit to 
Kimbo the White Lion, which, if it is a coincidence, is probably the all-time coincidence that has ever occurred. I just think that to have this monetary gain from something that was probably in part inspired by Kimba the White Lion is a little dishonest. And so you had Yoshirio Shimizu of Tezuka Productions, so the creator of Kimba the White Lion. He made a statement, and it's a really powerful and sad one. He said, in response to people saying they should sue Disney, he said, we're a small, weak company. It wouldn't be worth it anyway. Disney's lawyers are among the top 20 in the world. So it's almost like, why even try? And that's kind of sad to hear. It, it definitely is. And there's plenty, if, if people want more information on this, there's plenty of videos yeah. out there that talk about this controversy. And Kimba is still a cultural mainstay in a lot of different parts of Japan. There's, I believe, a baseball team that has Kimba as their mascot. Um, and it's insane when you consider that The Lion King came out in 1994 and that Kimba the White Lion as the anime started in 1965. There was a film in 1966. There was a 1966 series. There was a 1989 series. There was a, a video animation film in 1991. And then in 1997, there was a reboot film called Jungle Emperor Leo, which again follows Kimba or a very similar um, idea. And the really interesting part here is that the 1997 film was in production at the same time as The Lion King. But due to some studio issues and funding and whatnot, um, the studio wasn't able to finish um, in that same amount of time. And it probably actually would have would have been distributed at around the same time as The Lion King. But because of these issues, it didn't release until 1997. Some people actually looked at Jungle Emperor Leo and said that it was ripping off of The Lion King, not being familiar with the cultural significance that Kimba already had. And I believe that Disney had filed a cease and desist against them for that film in 97. Yeah, I believe that I believe that you are correct. I mean, I, it's this was just insane to me when you you brought this up. I hadn't heard any of this and um the creator also created Astro Boy, which is a um a show that I, I haven't watched in years, but is very near and dear to my heart. It was something that um, my dad introduced me to. So, not being familiar with this is was crazy to me and it's just it's an insane story that I think I think deserves more limelight and at least some recognition at this point from Disney. Yeah, I agree. And so I thought, you know, had this happened nowadays, I feel like the response would have been different. But in the 90s, there just wasn't as much dissemination of information going on. So for sure, it it kind of snuck through the cracks. And with the remake, it popped up again, but it's just too late for anything to happen. But as long as it's out there, it's a story that should be told. And if you want more information, again, there's plenty of excellent videos out there. And you could see the side-by-side comparisons of, of shots with each other. Yeah, and the, the side-by-sides really are, are insane. Because, again, being a, having loved The Lion King when I was a kid, I was immediately on the side of, no, that, that, that can't be true. And, no, like, this can't be true. <laughs> um, but it's it's insane, the... Uh, looking at some of those side-by-side shots and and again especially some of them even being from the anime that definitely predated the lion king film all right let's get off this topic a little bit and talk more about our deeper thoughts spoiler thoughts um about the movie one from one of the biggest ones for me is that a lot of the scenes we sort of talked about this in spoiler free but a lot of the scenes just didn't really hit me quite as hard um mufasa mufasa's death scene in particular like that was traumatic <laughs> as a kid. I don't know if it was the same for you, but like that was rough. That was one of the saddest scenes in any movie ever when I had watched it as a kid. And it didn't feel the same. Maybe it's because I'm older. Maybe it's because I already knew what was coming, but it somehow didn't hit as hard. It didn't feel like it's a weird critique to have. And I don't think it was the actor's fault at all, but Simba didn't almost feel frantic or scared or you know really that involved in what was going on to some degree it, it just it didn't hit as hard as in the original film and I mean there there are a million scenes to 
talk about that I felt the same way about, but obviously the Mufasa's death scene is one of the most emotional scenes in the entire film. And it just didn't, it didn't hit me nearly as hard as the original. And here's the kicker too. And I think that's a function of it being so realistic. They sacrificed some of the benefits you get out of this cartoonish animation by allowing these characters to have facial features and, and have a lot more, it was almost like the characters themselves had to make up for the lack of facial response from the realistic lion animation. I 100% agree. I couldn't put my finger on that for a very long time. Like I, I sort of hemmed and hawed for hours after watching this movie, trying to figure out why the emotional responses given by the actors didn't hit as well. And I think that's exactly it. There was a weird juxtaposition between the visuals that we were seeing and what we were hearing. Cause again, you look at the original Lion King, the expressions come through very clearly, but because again, they wanted this to be look like an animal planet thing. I think somebody even said, we want this to look like something you would see as a nature documentary because of that. They obviously couldn't put in the heavy amount of facial expressions that they did in the original Lion King. Zazu is a really good example where John Oliver did a pretty good job of being very, um, you know, exasperated all the time, trying to, especially early on, trying to keep up with these two young lion cubs that are trying to escape him and this and that. But he's sounding very annoyed and trying to keep keep them in tow. But I watch him and it's still just a bird and the bird doesn't change facial expression at any time. And it's, again, I look at it and it is literally just a bird that is talking and getting more and more exasperated. So they had to pull a lot more weight and it it's a really hard thing to do. And it, it pulled me out a little bit. And this kind of goes into a different point that I had that I also realized much later that I couldn't initially put my finger on, which is a weird one, which and I, it's, it's a question that I want to ask you, Jacob, who would you say is the target audience for this film? That is a good question. And I would, I don't know if there is an answer. My answer would be our generation. I think I agree. I, it's not just our generation, but the, the specifically the people that loved Lion King. Right. And again, that's, I don't think that that should have been the target demographic. I think that we should have been the secondary demographic. Cause again, to me watching this, it's clearly not a kid's movie, right? Like, or maybe it kind of is, but it's, it's not like the original Lion King. Like, no kid is going to watch the DVD or the Blu-ray of this until it runs out, right? I mean, partly because that doesn't happen really <laughs> as much anymore. But beyond that, like, there's no kid that's going to watch the DVD of this and then go, I want to watch this again immediately. Like, I know there's dozens of people that I know that were like, yeah, I would watch the Lion King over and over and over and over literally all day when I was a kid. And I don't feel like that's going to be the case at all with this one. It doesn't have the same iconic feel to it. It doesn't have that same impact. And kids aren't known for their love of nature documentaries. That's, that's true. I've, I've read that once. <laughs> and part of it, too, is that as a kid, when you saw a scar, you're like, oh, that scar. You felt the, the badness. And when you look at this movie, it's not that you can't distinguish characters from each other, but... I just saw a lion with a little bit of a thing on his eye and yeah. it wasn't, I didn't have that same fear, that same feeling seeing scars. It's like, oh, it's a, it's a lion. Oh no. No, I, I agree. And I couldn't, I, I think it, yeah, partly was visuals. I, I think, uh, that edge did, a fine enough job. And I can't tell if Jeremy Irons just makes a better, scarier, Scar, but yeah, I felt the same thing. He didn't feel as menacing or scary. Again, maybe I've grown up and, you know, I'm not four anymore, so maybe that's part of it. <laughs> but I I don't know. Like I said, the characters didn't, obviously didn't feel as fresh because they're characters that we know, but it, it also didn't feel like the characters, if that m- makes sense. It felt like it was the same movie, but with different characters. I agree, whereas... Not to refer back to a different live action, but I felt like the Disney remake of Aladdin, it it at least felt like Aladdin was himself in some way. 
he still had some of that natural spunk, that street rat vibe. Yeah. But here it just didn't feel like the characters were themselves. Yeah, it was almost like here's a the Lion King with different lions in it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and again, using Aladdin as an example, people were very concerned about Will Smith. And I thought he did a really good job that didn't happen here, which was he paid really good homage to the original character, Robin Williams' original character, while still making it his own, but still very recognizable as the same character. He's still the genie from Aladdin, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And here it almost felt like all of the characters, or all of the actors, rather, recognized how how big this original movie was. And again, to be fair, they had pretty big shoes to fill against, at one point, the second highest grossing film of all time. I think it might still be the highest grossing animated film of all time, but I don't have that number immediately handy. Um, But just either way, such a well-loved movie. And so it felt like they were really afraid to break out of the original characters and that they felt like they had to be the same characters and they were so terrified by that that I don't feel like they did a good job of doing that either yeah maybe that was part of it it was such a iconic movie and it was such a big task that it was almost just too hard to fill that role for sure the only two people that I felt really did it funny enough were um billy eichner as timon and seth rogan amazingly as pumbaa where they they were obviously the same character again it was kind of the will smith thing where they were obviously the same characters but i did feel like they sort of made it their own and it's funny because i leaned over to my girlfriend at one point as we were watching this and i said i don't remember if timon was exactly like this in the original movie but if so billy eichner is a really good cast and if not this is just billy eichner kind of playing himself (laughs) and seth rogan to also to be fair yeah, Seth Rogen was surprisingly good. I'm not a huge fan of his by any means, but I feel like he benefited from being a human Pumbaa in some ways. I feel like That's if, true. if I were to cast uh, uh, humans as the Lion King characters, Pumbaa would definitely be Seth Rogen. So. Um, but yeah, they were probably some of the better points of the movie, believe it or not, and I don't think that's yeah. necessarily what you would want out of this film. And maybe not for everybody, but they definitely had my favorite scene in the movie, which was the Lion Sleeps Tonight scene, which they had in the original film, but they expanded upon it with all of the other animals joining them and doing this whole chorus line, which was then ruined by Beyonce. <laughs> um, which I don't want to say that's a common theme. It's Beyonce is a very talented woman. But I and I haven't and I know she's been in some other films. I just didn't feel it here. Um, I mean, incredibly talented, a very good voice. It's just very hard for her in Can You Feel the Love Tonight? And to be fair, Donald Glover, too. I think he's also a very talented musician. I think he's got a very good voice, too. And I think, again, it's hard because we're looking at it through a lens of nostalgia and I'm just everybody's just so very used to the original Elton John version. And I'm I'm not sure if that's the lens that I'm looking through, but because it wasn't the same maybe it could never be as good i'm not sure i just i didn't feel that i didn't feel a lot of the songs quite as much as i did the original ones maybe it's just the charm it it was such a big movie big budget big names that maybe they tried to coast on that a little bit too and you know this original film had to in some ways make it by its it was creating a name it was at least new to some audiences you know controversy aside yeah it's a hard feeling to explain i got watching this movie it it just wasn't that magic even in the songs themselves and you know they changed a couple things with the songs but i think part of the some of the scenes they removed just in general were really also what made that emotional impact so much lower for instance they had the the past can hurt scene right before he went back to fight Scar or whatever, they removed yeah. that from the, the new one. And that was a, a pretty big scene, and it showed some of his motivations in the original film. And you, you miss that here. And that also would partially be due to the Rafiki just not being the same character. He, he was almost entirely stripped in this movie, was not a fun character, and 
and it no, they, they turned him more into into a hermit character, which is and I read a very interesting thing that a friend of mine uh, posted on Facebook, and it was something we talked about this a little bit off cast too. It's something that I don't think you or I could necessarily relate to, but he was talking about how important this movie was to him as a young uh, African American kid growing up with it, and how Rafiki in that movie sort of played the uncle character who you know once your dad isn't around for whatever reason was always sort of there and helped to guide you and give you some clarity and remind you of who you are and like who your family is and it didn't I mean there was a little bit of that but it didn't feel the same he just felt like a hermit he was barely in the movie I felt like he was and you just missed that emotional impact yes the past can hurt and you can either run from it or learn from it something along those lines that's a deep line and and it's something you know that was deep for kids and for adults alike and now to throw out a scene such as that one in particular i was i was a little let down i guess yeah i i can i can definitely see that to some degree i feel like this movie was just it it wasn't about the story anymore almost it was kind of like avatar in that neither of them really focused on the story they were both really cool and at sending visuals but that was the almost the point they're like the story is going to take a second fiddle to this like for for avatar cameron pioneered a specifically designed camera that was like six inches away from the actor's faces so that he could generate those facial expressions on the on the Navi later, which is really cool. Don't get me wrong. It's an incredibly cool technology that I believe is still used in film and video games and a lot of things. And like, that's how that started, which to that end, I'm really grateful for. And it was awesome. Um, and in terms of the Lion King, Sean Bailey, who is Disney's president of production said that the film's visual effects were some sort of new form of filmmaking and that historical de- definitions don't work for it. And that it uses techniques that would traditionally be called animation and other techniques that would traditionally be called live action and it's an evolution of the technology that John Favreau used in the Jungle Book, which you can definitely see. Like, this looks a lot like the Jungle Book, but again, it felt like the story just, it's almost like they didn't care anymore. Like, they were sort of saying, hey, we want this to look really cool, but if you want the Lion King, just go watch the old Lion King. Yeah, it felt like more of a tech demo in some ways. And I felt the same right. way about another movie this year, Detective Pikachu, where. It was a very cool movie. All these different types of, you know, good-looking characters and CGI. But at the end of the day, if you sacrifice story for visuals, I think it's cool. And it's certainly something to to consider. Like, wow, look at the... When Avatar came out, it was so groundbreaking. Pretty much just Pocahontas in the story, though. This movie, it was based on a different movie. So it's almost hard to pair those two together where you have this unique film and these groundbreaking visuals Uh, maybe it's almost easier so you don't have to maybe it's for the budget you don't want to pay the writers or something but you know it i i'm a huge story buff i love good stories i love new stories or if you're going to retell a story maybe some kind of new edition i don't know but at the end of the day, it's it was it felt like a two-hour tech demo for me. An impressive one, but still that. Yeah, I agree. So beyond that, do you have any closing thoughts about this movie? Sounds like we dug into it, and at the end of the day, our scores were middling, 5 out of 10, 5.5 out of 10. So don't think we just hated the movie entirely. And, you know, again, the cast is still a very talented group of people, I just think in this setting, in this movie, it wasn't working for me. And I would just rather rewatch The Old Lion King than watch this one again. I think that's kind of what it comes down to for me as well. If you're a diehard fan of Lion King, then for sure, go see it. Take a look. Um, I'm actually very interested to hear other people's opinions, especially if you really loved The Lion King growing up and you were one of the people that burned the burn the VHS out and I know a ton of people that have like Lion King tattoos and things like that because it really resonated deeply with them so I'd really love to hear those opinions from people like that um, and from those that maybe aren't as familiar I'm really interested to hear your opinions as well um, but yeah at the end of the day for me what it comes down to is if you want to watch the Lion King don't watch this go watch the uh, original one but with that in mind if you want to tell me 
how wrong I am about that and how this new Lion King is absolutely the best one and how the animated one doesn't even doesn't hold a candle to this one. <laughs> Feel free to get at me on Twitter at PWG Grant. That is PWG G-R-A-N-T. And if you'd like to talk to me about how I have no idea what I'm saying or you'd like to say something nice, I'm also open to those comments. You can reach me on Twitter at a new handle, PWG Jacob. That's PWG J-A-C-O-B. I'd love to hear you. You can tweet at me, shoot me a DM, and I will get back to you. And if there's anything that you would like to say to both of us collectively, or if you have a question about industry talk or anything like that, suggestions for movies that you want us to review, anything related to that, you can also get in touch with the podcast at 35millimeterpod at gmail.com. That is 35mmpod at gmail.com. We know the industry talk segments can get a little bit dense, uh, Every couple weeks or so, or every couple months, probably, we're going to go back and answer some questions that you guys might have, do some rehashes on stuff. But, all right, Jacob, I know this has been a bit of a shorter one, but, you know, it's always going to be. This film was a remake, so a lot of what's <laughs> going to be said about it has already been said. So, thank you for another great week, and I look forward to talking to you about another movie next week. 35mm Perspective is a Players with Game production. All opinions within the podcast are our own. Michael Campos is our composer. All rights reserved.